And just like that, it's all over. Another Christmas done and dusted. And now you're into that lovely, quiet period of reflection and detox before all the madness begins again. So it's a perfect time for us to dip back into the archives and dig out some of our favourite moments from the show from over the last few months. Of course, as ever, there's far too much to choose from. We had a wonderful uh, September to December uh, range of guests on the show, as you'll soon see. So I've tried to find a few clips that represent the wide range of guests, topics and laughs that we tend to have on this show every week. We'll hear some wonderful moments from my chats um, with Al Porter, Terry Prone and Rachel Allen. But we'll start with a very interesting pair of interviews we had a few months back, which sort of intertwined with each other. First, we had Keith Duffy of Boyzone on the show, and he had a few things to say about he was treated, how he was treated by then-manager Louis Walsh. And as it happened, we had Louis lined up to come on the podcast just a couple of weeks later, and so we played him the clips from Keith, and, he gave, and gave him the chance to respond. And as you can imagine, Louis, he wasn't having any of it. So there was a point where you became like really famous and as boys own. Really famous. No, really famous. I mean, famous enough to like front a, sun, a Saturday night on BBC television. You know, that if boys own are turning up, everybody in England know boys own. England is, is like the home of feckin' rock music, you know, England and the United States. And boys own are like the biggest band in Britain, um, biggest boy band in Britain. And uh, when did you kind of first realise, fuck, I'm fucking famous? Well, this is what I was going to say to you about Louis. I never really did because Louis Louis was afraid that the creation was going to become bigger than the creator. So he'd insult you in front of your heroes and and it would be really, really oh, difficult. Oh, give you an example. Well, um, I mean, I, I know he introduced me to Bono once as Keith from Boys on the Can't, the one that can't sing. Mm. You know, and straight away you're put on your back foot and you're, and, and you're degraded. You're, you're completely degraded. And he'd, he'd done that to me quite a lot. I'd, I'd quite a, I was, I, what he didn't realise was I was quite shy. And I was quite sensitive and I hid that by being boisterous. So as a result, people thought I was very confident because I was boisterous, but really I was hiding my shyness. And it's only when you get older, you realise that. You realise the character you wear. I think Louis was afraid that I'd, I'd allow the success to get too big and ultimately maybe possibly discuss, be the one that discussed changing management or, or whatever, which never happened really. Um, but yeah, he, he'd put you down. He'd insult you in front of your heroes and it would just knock the socks out of you so there was never really a time that I recognised the fact that God you know I'm, I'm really famous it was years and years later when my kids were showing me stuff on YouTube that I'd forgotten that I had done I was going wow we were fucking huge sometimes people ring into this podcast okay yeah so Louis on the line actually say oh, hello is, is he yeah, yeah. hey Lucifer <laughs> Keith how are you Oh, it's great listening to these stories of the pod. I remember tugging on your, um, on your, on your, your, your trousers, shirt, trousers. on your trousers. I remember <laughs> tugging. I remember the boot. I remember the fact, Kate, you always give out to me. You say I'm bitchy. You say I'm cruel. You say I'm mean. The reason you didn't sing lead vocals in Boys Don't is because you were too good. <laughs> I, you were too good. I didn't want people exposed to a voice that explosive too early. I heard you singing Anne Murray earlier on. I heard you singing Rick Moranis or whatever it was. Nothing's going to touch me now. <laughs> I heard you singing. You can sing. Ah, Louis, you've made my day. It's what I've been waiting all these years to hear. Thank Kate, you. Thank you so much for ringing in. Can bye, we bury bye. the hatchet? No, can we bury the hatchet? <laughs> hey, where? <laughs> where would you like me to bury it, Louis? <laughs> <laughs> you always had a sense of humour. Kate, can we put it behind us? Absolutely. I'll see you up in the Intercontinental for a coffee in 20 minutes. Intercontinental? It's my favourite hotel. It's my Canteen. I know, I know, sure. It's where we all go to see you. I ate there all the time. I preferred when it was the Four Seasons, though. Kate, what do you think of my new band? 
I haven't seen them, Lou. But they're gonna be huge. Massive, are they? They're gonna be huge. They? They're gonna. They have. The, they have the likability factor. They have it. They have it like you. Brilliant. <laughs> Will you forgive me? I forgive you. I love you. Did you watch things like Breaking Bad and that? Yeah. That was the good, wasn't it? Everything. Yeah, yeah. The White Lotus recently. Yeah, was I love the it White Lotus. Lovely, but it was good. Well, I love Jennifer Coolidge in it. Yeah, but she's playing the same character all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know who she reminds me of? No. You always say that. She reminds me of Twink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you're such a bitch. I know. But so are you. Boys on. Boys yeah. on. Now, I um, remember them, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had Keith on a few weeks ago. Yeah. Oh boy, let me tell you a couple of things about Keith. Was he Keith. singing? Uh, we we sang together. Okay. Mm. Um, we sang. Um, Close the window, come alive, and it will be all right. That's okay. No need to worry now. But that's not a boys' song, song, is it? But it's 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 a Rita Coolidge song, I think. Or uh, we're all alone. We're, it's a boss guy song. We're all alone. It's a boss guy. Yep. And um, we sang together, and uh, but we talked. He is really, really good. No, he's turned into a great person. He really has. He really has. Um, he is, my. for example, my wife now would not be interested in boys on or boy bands. No, I hope she, not. She listens to all my podcasts and she I went, Mario, I loved Keith. Right, because he was honest. Oh, yeah. And he opened up his heart. He did. That's good, yeah. And, and he's a very good father. And he, he is. And he talked he's about, he father. talked about, there's a kind of, an, there's a kind of, a, there's a kind of a, a, an image of boys life. Wait now, in mm-hmm. Ireland. Mm-hmm. Boys own and boys life. Yeah. Boys' life is just that Keith Duffy and your man Brian McFadden. Yeah, they're out there and they're just falling around. The they're place. like Millie Vanilli, yeah. But apparently, uh, apparently, because he's told me and he's not showed big me, in China. No, they, they are. <laughs> no, big in Asia. No, no, they're big, but well, but they can do small arenas. They do. They work. That is good they work stuff. On the back of the of Bin Boy Zone. Yes, but it works. Yeah. But Westlife do stadiums. I know. But Westlife are just so you know. But but when I'm just, just so I'm you just know. saying, give the guy his due. <laughs> no, no. Listen, he's a survivor. Yeah, and I I think he's turned into a really good person. Now you've got you're and you're you're you've got a person. You are you are um, a person. You are durable and you have endurance and you have a, a good leather skin on you. Yeah. So I want you to play this. I want to play this to you. Okay. A song? No, no. I want to play this to you. Okay. So Keith was very forthright about you. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. I gave him a break. He did, but but. But he, 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 you know, this idea of you used to be quite, you used to say things openly, right? Yeah. About like, this is Ronan. You know, Ronan's the only one in the band that can sing. This is Shane or whatever. Blah, 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 blah. Well, Ronan was, you know, Ronan had the ambition and he had the work right. ethic. Yeah. And he went out there to do it. Well, listen to this. So you okay. can respond to this, right? No, no, no. This was, it. Okay. It was on the podcast. Doesn't matter. Stop giving me the eyes. It was on the podcast. Louis was afraid that the creation was going to become bigger than the creator, so he'd insult you in front of your heroes, and and it would be really, really oh, difficult. Give you an example. Well, um, I mean, I, I know he introduced me to Bono once as Keith from Boys on the Can't, the one that can't sing, mm. you know. And straight away, you're put on your back foot, and you're and, and you're degraded. You're you're completely degraded. And he he done that to me quite a lot. I think Louis was afraid that I'd, I'd allow the success to get too big. And ultimately, maybe, possibly, discuss be the one that discussed changing management or or whatever. But yeah, he he'd put you down. He'd insult you in front of your heroes, and it would just knock the socks out of you. What do you think? I think that's bullshit. Well, go on. Absolute bullshit. Right to reply. Why would I even have introduced him to Bono? Um, he was he was very lucky. I put him in the in. He was in the right place at the right time. 
Mm. That's, That's what you have to be to be in a band. And he was a character. Mm. That was that was all. These are all the pros. And and he was fun. Yeah, he was fun. He wasn't the best singer in the world. No, he. Do, I don't think Ronan, he would even say that. Ronan kind of carried the show. Do you know what he told me? Do you, know what he, do you know what he told me? Yeah. He said that um, this is a very interesting point to do with singing as well. Mm. He said to do the boys' own and the Westlife songs. Yeah. He said that he was hard, very hard. Do you know why? Mm. Because he had never learned them. The only thing he had learned was the backing vocals. Yeah. And he said yes, but he said when you're trying to relearn a song from yeah. just standing in the background it's really hard hey it's show business I know put on a show I know but that's not the point I'm making the point I'm saying is he says and I agree with him that he's become much much better singer oh, over he probably the last has. 15 years you know years. why confidence yeah he's, he's very confident he's actually going out there and, and he, selling a song himself yeah and he's well able to speak yeah. and he's well able to sell and with Brian you know you know they have something going on you know they do and they have all the great songs of Boys on a Westlife they do that's what they have. Which, the best of which is? Flying Without Wings mm. is a great song. You Raise Me Up. All the Westlife songs are good. Yeah. I picked all the Boys On songs. I know. Every one of them. What's, the fa- what's your favourite Boys On song? Well, I think Love Me For A Reason because that w- that started the whole thing, you know? Yeah. And I picked Words, you know, the Bee Gees. Yeah, Bee Gees. Baby Can I Hold You. I picked everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So I was... Sorry. Yeah. And he was great. Ro- Ronan was a great... He was a great... Yeah. In any way... Yeah, he was great though. He, you know, he was a great. Oh, when the going gets tough. Oh, no. That wasn't a great song. That was a charity song, but it, it worked. They were all number ones, mm. and they all worked. It was a different time. I want to skip forward because you, the Tom Savage. All right, your beloved husband, yep. Tom Savage, who passed away. He did six years ago. Six years ago. Like I want, I know you're you're great communicator. So imagine your listeners don't know this story, right? But this is a great story. It could be a film itself. Tom was a priest. Not only was he a priest, but he was the priest sent by Cardinal Conway to welcome the British soldiers into Northern Ireland. Right. He he was part of the history of the North, and then he came south to become a, a communications lecturer in the communications clinic. Um, which was the Catholic Church at the time deciding that it needed to come to terms with television. That's right. 60, I remember they set up their own television and communication systems in the Catholic Church. Uh, and the, the, the place in Booterstown was right. alive with people. The Ryark people yeah. who made documentaries. Lots just of money was put into it. Lots of money. Yeah. And Bunny Carr was recruited as the CEO and he rang me. I suppose I was 19 or 20 he rang me and said he wanted me to come in and assess a bunch of parish priests giving sermons and I said Bunny I know shag all about sermons and he said you'd be grand and I'll put in one of my senior lecturers to make sure you don't do anything wrong so fine I'm sitting down and I have seven parish priests of enormous age they were at least maybe 50 and um, (laughs) I got started with them recorded them and then this guy um, in full regalia, full priestly regalia, and with a sort of a beetle haircut, came in at the back, and he did, he did that gesture. Do you know the one that says, "Don't make an issue out of my arrival. Keep going." So mm. I thought, grand, and I was playing um, a sermon back, and I stopped the playback, and I said to the priest, "Talk to me about." what you want the people in the congregation to understand. And he got raging out of the blue. I hadn't said anything to him bad at that stage. And he said, the good Lord told us that we were to be the shepherds of his flock. 
And before I could stop myself, I said, yeah, not the sheepdogs. And there was this deadly silence. The priest at the back that was put in to watch me left. And I'm thinking, oh, God. And then the old priest said to me, okay, but I've been a sheepdog a long time. Teach me how to be a shepherd. And I was fine. At coffee break, I went down to Bunny's office and I said, oh, Jesus, your man left halfway through the first thing. And Bunny said, yeah, he said you were flying, that you didn't need him there over watching over you. And then I noticed that this priest, do you know, you would know better than almost anybody else. Do you know when somebody comes into a group and the gaze pattern shifts and they're the centre of but they're not necessarily the performative centre. There's just something about them that makes other people want to impress them or tell a funny story to them or whatever. And Mm. I was watching him and I was fascinated. And then there was one day when Bishop Casey, the late Bishop Casey, came in. Now, my parents regarded uh, Bishop Casey as a Kamalia singing waste of air. And they so I kind of went out into the garden. And this priest, Father Tom Savage, was going up and down reading his breviary. And when he was finished, he came over and I said, you might want to go in because um, Bishop Casey is in there. And he said, no, I would not want to meet Bishop Casey. And he very decidedly would not want to meet me. And I said, why? And he said, because he stole my scholarship And he knows he stole my scholarship. Tom had done research on homelessness in London. Bishop Casey had asked to read it and had then simply uh, stolen it. And every now and again, something like that would come up. And then he would sometimes drop into my family home in Clontarf on his way to visit his sister Teresa in Rohini. And we would talk about anything and everything. And then one day I realised, oh, I've never met anybody like this man. And what I'm feeling is probably means that I'm in love with them. And that was just infinitely sad because I knew he was a great priest and therefore there was no future in it. And then... Did you tell him? I did. And what did he say? (laughs) He smiled at me and he said, oh, Tess... You know, I've loved you from the first day we met. I think now we should get married. And I'm sitting in my parents' sitting room and I'm looking across the room at a man who has never touched me, never kissed me, never even hugged me. And he has just asked me to to marry him. And I kind of said, okay, because I'm not stupid. And then he said, after another long silence, he patted the arm of the chair he was in and he said, you wouldn't maybe come over and sit with me? And I went over and sat beside him. And that was the first time that we ever kissed or held hands or touched or anything. And it was three years before he was permitted to leave the priesthood. And during that time, his family had huge problems with it. They very much got over it uh, later. And my father, I, I lived at home for the three years. 
because, Mario, you're probably too young to know this concept. But there was this concept in Catholicism that you didn't give scandal. If you were doing something of which the church disapproved, you should at least not do it very obviously. And so I stayed at home in order not to give scandal. My father didn't talk to me for the three years. Um, and on one Christmas day, there was a package beside my plate at breakfast and it was um, a copy of Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ inscribed in my father's beautiful handwriting to my former daughter. Oh. And yet, and yet, about three weeks before we were actually allowed to get married, my father came to me and said he would like to give me away and that he was sorry for how he had treated me for the last three years. Families are just so fascinating. Mm. And afterwards, I was thinking, this was this was a miracle for more than me because I had never, I had always admired my father. He's a man of courage and intellect, but I'd never really liked him that much. But then after we got married and Anton came along, but when Anton was about two, there was a thunderclap of affection between him and his grandfather that lasted until his grandfather died. And I was always so grateful to my father that he he made the move and allowed that to happen because I think Anton's life would have been impoverished if he hadn't had the mischievous, funny, adoring relationship that he had with with Bren, as he called mm. him. Very, very touching, very moving. Thank you for sharing that with me, Terry. I, I really, I could picture every moment of that story. Uh, just to be slightly flippant, it, it does sound like a movie. Doesn't it? <laughs> Nobody has yet sought the film rights, mm. but I'm I'm available. Um, so during the period you were you were in your hiatus, shall mm. we call it? You had normal jobs. Yeah, tell I mean, us about those. It, the, the odd time. So sometimes I wasn't really uh, well enough to work, and that sounds. I turned into Pat Kenny there for a second. Did you hear that? <laughs> well, oh, enough well, enough, oh, well enough to work. Well enough to work. Well enough to work. In in, in caveat emptor, oberime fide, as they say in Latin. Oberime my bidet. A bury me fide. Bury me fide. In good faith. All oh, right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was uh, the odd time I did. I mean, the, the, there were times when I, I didn't leave my bedroom, and I was kind of, you know, I, I I went through periods where I really wouldn't open the curtains or leave the bedroom. It was kind of Howard Hughes esque, mm. you know. So I don't know whether it was depression or a lion that got out of hand. <laughs> you go, I'm going to stay in bed for a while, and then six months later, you're pissing in a bottle yeah. and slipping notes under the don't leave the food at the door, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one time my mum sent a priest into my bed. This is how bad it got because my mum is the parish secretary, God lover, you know. And, uh, you know, this is just mortifying for her, the whole thing. And she sent a priest into my bedroom to try to get me out of bed. Mm. And I remember thinking, you know, does she know me at all? (laughs) 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 But uh, I needed exercise, not an exorcism. But anyway, she sent him in. But God love her. You know, she was uh, I used to hear people talking about me through the floorboards as if I was dead. 
I mean, this is true as God. Family members visiting a year, two years in. I'm going through one of my depressive periods up in bed. What's your mum's name? Marion. How long has he gone now, Marion? <laughs> I heard them saying to her, you know, stuff like, uh, ah, is he on? God love you, Marion. Yeah, he was he, great, though. He was so young. Yeah. He was so young. He got you taken know, very Had early. his whole life ahead of taken him. Taken too quick. And she's going, yeah, yeah. And my favourite was the time someone said to her, oh, Marion, what a waste of a life. And she said, ah, yeah, but he's up there somewhere. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. At least I still have the other two. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm, lo- I'm not dead, you know. Oh, but brilliant. Mario, when I did... Tell me you tell that story in your show. Uh, I sp- I haven't yet, actually. That's I will. really funny. Yeah, maybe I will. Maybe oh, that's I should funny. I think that, that. image, because it taps into something quite dark and Irish as yeah. well. And the way... Also that way we talk about each other when we're at death's door. Yeah. Irish, you know, the Irish people go, jeez, you're looking great. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I've never seen you look better. <laughs> and the worse you get, the better you're oh, looking. yeah. I mean, when I was really, really, really mm. fat, yeah. you know, LGBT. Looking great, plus. Yeah. You're very healthy. Mm. God, you look very healthy. Yeah. And now that I'm thin, are you sick? Yeah. Oh, he's up there somewhere. Yeah. It's hilarious. That's yeah, a oh, great, no, I'll include that, will, that then. Okay, right. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm I, if I'd, I'll stake my entire comedy life on it. If you can create a story that lasts approximately three minutes and finish with uh, he's up there somewhere okay. you will bring the house down I'll do it I'll do it why not and I need the material all I want is text from you afterwards going, I'll do it it works I'll let you know I'll do it <laughs> The um, but the odd time then so I mean that's me being sort of facetious about but there were times of uh, yeah it's just Xanax and Valium and and uh, lots of drink and a litre of vodka a day at one stage no. and, and yeah yeah oh, but then there were other times when can I can I ask you about what, what mm. can I ask you physically what it's like to drink a litre of vodka a day? Uh, well, I tried to share it around. So I don't know if I had the whole okay. litre, but I did almost. Who I'd would you say. be sharing it with? Uh, well, Not the, Marion. Well, no. <laughs> but just you'd have the odd friend who'd visit you and kind of go, okay. you're all right, all and right. you're going to have a few shots. But I drank the majority of it, you yeah, know, but yeah. I don't want to over-egg mm. the thing. But uh, what's it like? You know, like I, w- I would have it, I, had, I used to have shots in the shower. What? Yeah. What's that? But because just, just because, physically explain that. Well, well, oh yeah, You're in the shower. just have a shot glass in the in the bathroom. Gigantic penis in hand, <laughs> dragging it along the floor, right? Yeah. So I have to Hoover, whip it finish, over my just shoulder. Just finished hoovering. Yeah, well, take a few pictures, do a few sketches, right? right? Whip it over the shoulder, and then pour yourself a little bit. See, it was Tesco's fault. Tesco had this twenty euro liter of vodka deal. Oh, well, not one of those ones with a, a crazy, stupid Russian name that does that's barely sounding Russian. No, it was Teskov- a good one. Teskovich. No, 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 it was a proper one, you know. Okay, and right, then, okay. and yeah, you just think, oh, you just need something to go. Oh, fuck it, you know, and just get get through the day mm. or whatever. Yeah, what what I talk about with people is that uh, until you can accept your life, you can't live it. I really believe that. I think that the 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 disconnect or the disharmony or the dissonance between uh, existing in a life that you refuse to accept is yours and maybe you're refusing to accept it because that would involve going Ugh, I'm you know I've put myself at this rock bottom or whatever uh, you stop living at all and and that was these kind of periods where a little bit of me I think thought well the next time I'm in my 20s I won't fuck it up when the next time I'm in my 20s, it's all going to be, it's all going to go rosy and everybody's going to think I'm great. The refusal to go, uh, there is no next time. This is it. And so you're just spending your days drinking and smoking joints and, and letting day move into month, move into year because, no, I don't read. This is an existence. This isn't my life. 
this isn't really my life. It was very upsetting when I gave up the drink, just seeing as though we're on this track. When I gave up the drink, all of this emotion came back. All of this feeling. And it wasn't just the drink I gave up, it was everything. Uh, Cigarettes, even. Uh, uh, Weed and everything you can think of. Uh, Gone. And all this feeling came back. And suddenly Mm. I felt like, you know, 17-year-old Al again. It's being alive. 16-year-old Al. You were numbing yourself. Yeah. And I was more myself than I was when I was 22, 23 supposedly on top of the world, you know, doing the showbiz thing. You found thing. yourself. Because that was a carousel of of pressure. And uh, every time I did something good when I was 22, 23, it didn't mean anything to me because, well, this is nothing compared to the next thing. And the pressure for it to be good and, and the pressure to come off of the stage in the three arena when I did Comic Relief, I wasn't really there because I, all I was thinking was, uh, was I brilliant? Was it good enough? Uh, am I going to get to do the three arena myself next year? You're, you're living for the future. And and also doing so many things, as I said, you're bouncing from one thing to the next and you're drinking at them and you're not really... When I gave everything up, God, it was a painful shock to meet myself as if I had disappeared aged 19 and re-emerged aged 27 and gone, oh my God, here you are. It's me. It's, it's Alan Kavanagh. Here I am. Holy crap. We're alive. We're here. And we can, we don't have to do comedy. We don't have to be famous. We don't... You just... Al, what are you interested in? Why aren't you watching films anymore? What kind of music do you like? Where are your friends? What have you done this year? Like, what's your life? And then I could start... And then when I knew the same boy who had gotten... 10 A's in the junior cert and what a joy and I was like I'm such a swat I'm amazing and the same guy who got the scholarship to Trinity uh, this was me he was the guy who had tried his hand at comedy and it had gone well but it had gone all wrong and he'd made some mistakes and here he was and life had gotten quite out of control but he was here and and there's time to change it if I just was willing to start living. So, Rachel, listen, I mean, that's very interesting to find out about your background. But, but you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, for, your public persona is all to do with, with food and all this sort of stuff. And it's been, you know, a massively booming business for not only for you, but for the whole culinary sort of industry, food industry in Ireland and, you know, the books and the TV and all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, was it... Are you surprised you ended up in this business? What, like, was it always going to be food, or was there a Rachel Allen who was destined to become an accountant, or a stevedore, or a hockey player, or a, an astronaut? Were you, do you, on reflection, do you think you were always destined maybe to, for this kind of industry, or what? I don't know. I I definitely knew I wanted to do something creative. Um, our careers guidance teacher. Uh, in in I was in school in Dublin at Mishihi. She used to 
every week I would go to her and I'd say, Mochi. I was always a bit kind of ditzy and say, I think I might be a dancer or I think I might be an actress. What do you think? Or I think I might be an hostess, or I think I might be, you know, whatever. So every week she'd come in and say, Rachel, come in. What is it this week? And she was actually just always so lovely. I want, I loved art. Went to Grafton Academy between fifth and sixth year for a month with my cousin Mark. Mark O'Neill, he went on to do great things in fashion oh, in design. Fashion, yes. Uh, yeah. And mm. so went with him. And I always remember on the first day, the teacher, Stephen, said, I'd love you all just to do some sketches of some figures. And I kind of thought, you know, I could be the next, who knows, uh, I don't know, Mark Jacobs, he wasn't around then, but whoever. And, um, and so I started practically drawing like lollipop figures and my cousin Mark started like doing these amazing figures you know with the big shoulder pads and all these things and I remember looking at his bit of paper in front of him and mine and I thought okay I don't think I'm I'm cut out for this <laughs> uh, literally um so I love I love design and aesthetics and you know love all that kind of thing but uh, and then thought about shoes so my mum was in fashion actually my dad was in as I said his father's um shoe factory Win Stanley that Closed in 85 in the, I suppose, the second last um, recession. Um, recession. Thank you very much. And um, so, and then he went on to open another smaller shoe factory. So, so I was always interested in shoes or fashion. And I was really lucky growing up that my parents never, they always said, look, you'll have to find something to support yourself. But they never, I never felt pushed to do a certain thing. So, um I always baked, baked at home, just loved that, but never really thought about it as a job. Because do you remember, you know, in the 70s, I was born in 1971, 70s and 80s, if you were cooking, you were just chefing and it was quite male dominated. And and then, so I would just kind of bake just to do something. And actually the same with our daughter now, she does that a lot. She's more interested in baking than she is in school, probably apart from her friends, which was same as me. Yeah. And um, so I, I remember thinking about, oh, maybe I'll do drama studies in Trinity and I'll have an amazing time. Or maybe I'll do shoe design in London. Never really knew. And I always felt slightly out of place in one way with all my friends because they were talking about what degrees they wanted to do. Um, and there were a couple of us, Liza, Deborah and I, we were always just like going, don't really have a clue. But then I came down to see this place, the cookery school at Ballymaloo here, um, in 89, actually just after I'd left school and thought I would love to just do this, go to cookery school. Because I had said to my parents, mum and dad said, right, what, actually at one stage in fifth year, I wanted to leave school. And um, they said, you need to just finish your leaving because what else, you know, come to us with a better option. So kept trying to think of alternatives and then I decided, right, I suppose might as well just stay on in school, do my leaving. And um, then and mum and dad had said, um, so you want to travel, you know, well, how are you going to earn your money? You know, how are you going to get your way around the world? And um, I said, but you'll pay for it? And they said, no, but we'll, we'll help you to learn a skill and we'll we'll support you in that. But then you need to... Which was, I think, just such a great lesson, actually. Um, so they said, when they realized I was into cooking and my sisters, a couple of friends of my sisters had come down here to Balamaloo before that. Um, so they very kindly, um, 
enables me to come down here to do the three month cookery course. Exactly. And so, then so I realized. That, that, that's what I, yeah. Then you realized when you were there. That, so, so, so describe to me this place when you saw it first. This is a kind of an extraordinary place in Irish life, this Ballymaloo house. Tell me what you saw, your experiences there and how it changed your life. So I thought when I was growing up, I mean, I, we used to laugh with our friends, anyone who was from outside Dublin, like go, ah, oh, the cultures. <laughs> yeah. And either when the new boarders would come into Alex, I was a day girl in Alexandra College, loved it. And the new boarders would come in and, but there was always like, oh, well, they're coming to Dublin, you know, much better for them. Or I didn't actually, re- I, I feel like I was quite ignorant really about how, how sophisticated the rest of the country could be that, I mean, it's. I can't believe I'm even just saying it, but you know, it was. How sophisticated the common people actually are. (laughs) You actually get down into the ground and meet them. It's just ridiculous. I was that typical um, South County Dublin girl. I feel that, you know, even when I say things now, Scarlett, my daughter, if I say, oh, junior school and senior school, she'll say, mom, that's so South County Dublin. Um, right. It's primary school. It's like, anyway, whatever. Just It's just a bit of a joke. It's not dissing anyone yeah. from there, of course. Um, but so when I got down here, I found it really extraordinary. I There was a certain, um, I mean, I feel I grew up in a very liberal home but there was a certain feeling down here. Um, there was, I don't know whether it was because the Allens are Quaker mm. um, or whether there were a lot of pioneering women around the place, but I don't mean yes. that as, and I mm. wanted to go off and burn my bra. <laughs> like, mm. well, mm. it, it just, it felt there was a certain. Um, progressive. Progressive, exactly. Atmosphere. But then. I I loved also, let's keep in mind, I had never lived away from home yeah. and living away from home and being able to, you know, I remember on the first night, Nikki Walsh, who's also from Dublin, her and I were put into a bedroom together here at the cookery school and we mm. both lay in bed with a bottle of Heineken and both going, mm. this is great, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually it was, it was a certain, it was all ages getting on well together. There was, there was just something I don't know. It was a combination of lots of different things that I just found yes. so interesting, so exciting. Um, and, and, yeah, I suppose, that, and I suppose it coincided as well, this extraordinary place, which everybody knows, coincided with a kind of a renaissance or a rebirth or uh, uh, in the whole field of cookery. Like the whole idea that like it can, you can do better than just bacon and spuds on a plate not that there's anything wrong with bacon and spuds, it's fantastic food, but that we can be more creative about it. We can find the world. We can put the world mm. on a plate and Ireland can be as good as anywhere. And so not only did, you know, it, it kind of coincide with the birth of, you know, gastronomy in Ireland and the whole range of restaurants we have now, which I could talk to you about later, but also that whole world of TV where, you know, you had in the 70s, like certain very, very staid and formal <laughs> ladies on British TV cooking and, you know, kind of middle-aged, almost mm-hmm. frumpy kind of situation. And then it became this new rock and roll. Um, this is so true. So true. It was also um, coming up to the end of the whole Nouvelle Cuisine era, where, as you say, there were either quite fuddy-duddy people 
women cooking or there were very stern chefs wearing very tall paper hats. Yes, yes. Um, and there was nothing in between. And then I remember hearing Mrs. Allen, Myrtle Allen. Yes. Um, and Dorina, um, my mother, who went on to become my mother-in-law. Yeah. Hearing them talking about food and actually speaking about the quality of the ingredients as being the most important thing. Mm. And and though I was really lucky to grow up with really good food, mum always had something delicious cooking away, even though she yes. was working. And um, But it, it struck me for the first time about, okay, if you start with good produce, you don't actually have to do very much. And that can be just fantastic in itself. And you don't, you don't need to fuss around. So I found that really interesting. I mean, I, I thought when I was leaving Dublin, I remember my friend saying, you're going down to County Cork. Oh, well, you'd be back up every weekend, would you? And I said, yeah, of course I will. And then I came down here first and thought, oh my goodness, I love this. I'm just going to, I want to stay and just immerse myself in it. Um, I thought we would be flambeing and sautéing and making all these Mm. fancy things in the first week but actually Mm. we weren't we were having Mm. walks around the farm we were being shown yes what soil looks like yes and at first i thought and i remember remember thinking because drina used to just run around it well she still does run around everywhere (laughs) but she always used to wear long flowing skirts and you kind of hear the ruffle of her skirts um you know, before you'd see her and then, and then she would literally be saying, look, this is soil. This is, you know, these are seeds. This is, and it was totally different to what I expected. And I, it's just on the first day. And I remember saying to Nikki, who's still my great friend, Nikki was, and um, as I said, she and I were just pushing a room together here on the farm while doing the cookery course. And we both just said, oh my God, this is amazing. We just loved it. Just loved it, loved it. Hope you enjoyed. Thanks for all your support this year. Please tell a friend or one person just about this podcast. Back with new guests and comedy next week. Luke O'Neill, would you believe it, will be in the hot seat. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.